Habakkuk 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a film that came out in 2003, which I did not see and would not see and am not recommending. And it was called Bruce Almighty. Now, um, in this movie, Bruce Almighty, Bruce was complaining about his life, and he was complaining to the God character in the movie, and he was complaining about how God was running the universe, particularly as it referred to Bruce, and so the God character made a deal with Bruce, and he said, okay, if you think I'm not doing a good job of running the universe, then I will hand at least this portion, I think it was Buffalo, New York, over to you for a week and give you almighty Powers. That's why it's called Bruce Almighty. And so Bruce was thrilled that he had these almighty powers for a week. And so he began by using them exceedingly selfishly. And then he began by, uh, he continued by using them very foolishly. And quite predictably, Buffalo fell into chaos because Bruce Almighty was not using his powers very well. And so he went back before the week was up. He went back to the God character and asked him to take the powers back. And then Bruce started dedicating himself to helping other people, but with the normal human powers that he had always had. As I said, not recommending the film, but it does raise some interesting questions, doesn't it? And it does expose something that I think all humans who believe in God have experienced at some point or another, where we look either at the world or we look 
at others around us or we look at our lives and we question God and say, God, are, are you doing this right? Because from my perspective, it doesn't seem like things are operating as they should. Now, Habakkuk is an interesting prophecy and something of a unique prophecy because it's not much of a prophecy. It's mostly a conversation between the prophet and God. And there are two complaints. We saw the last complaint last week, the first complaint last week, and we see the second complaint today. The first complaint was this. Habakkuk looked around and he saw violence in the nation of Judah. God's people were violent and corrupt and vicious. And Habakkuk was incensed by this injustice in the people of God and said, God, you're not doing anything about this. You are pushing my face into this and you are sitting back and idly looking at all of this situation. And so he wanted God to act. And then we had the response. And God's response was, I am going to raise up the much more violent and vicious and corrupt Chaldeans. And that's where we ended last week. Now, Habakkuk, in light of God's response, has a second complaint. And that's where we get today. But before he gets to his complaint, what Habakkuk did was rehearse what he knew and believed about God. He, he began by that. He said, are you not from everlasting? Verse 12. So he said, God's eternal. He reaffirmed that God is eternal. And then he said, O Lord, my God, and Lord is the, the, the covenant name for God. It's the personal name for God with all capital letters. And he says, O Yahweh, O Lord, my God. And then he says, my Holy One. So he rehearses in just this, this, this first part of this verse. He says that God is eternal. God is the God of the covenant. And he, he loves his people. God is holy. And this God is my God. And then he says, therefore, we shall not die. We shall not die. There is hope here. There's hope for life here. Even though it doesn't look like it, as I look around, there's hope for life. But then he begins to talk to God about God's plan. And um, he makes a connection that was implicit in the text we looked at last week, but he brings it out. Because last week, all he said was, God, there's violence among your people. And God's answer was, I will raise up the Chaldeans. But what's the connection between the violence of God's people and the raising up of the Chaldeans. It's left implicit, but, but Habakkuk puts two and two together, and he explains why God was doing that. In verse, in verse 12 still, still, he says the second part, O Lord, you have ordained them, the Chaldeans, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he understood why God was raising up the Chaldeans, that they were coming for the Judeans that they were coming as a judgment, as a reproof, as a correction, as a discipline to the Jews, to the Judeans. Now, um, that raised, you would think, uh, you think on the one hand, he could say, okay, I complained that you weren't going to do anything. And then you said you were going to do something about it. And so one of uh, the possible responses of Habakkuk could be, great, I complained, you answered, you're going to take care of the situation. But but he had actually a bigger problem now because he said, God, you need to do something. And God said what he was going to do. And now Habakkuk comes back and says, but not that. Not that. I ask you to do something, but I, I, that's, that's not right, what you're proposing to do. And that was also because of what he knew about God. And so in verse 13, 
he talks about how God is. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So now Habakkuk's problem is even bigger, isn't it? He says, God, you're overlooking or you're looking at and doing nothing about the the violence in Israel, in Judah. But now you're going to raise up the Chaldeans and the Chaldeans are worse. And they are ravaging the earth. They were ravaging the earth at that point. And they were they were coming for the Judeans. And he's saying, now you're sitting by idly and looking at that. And once again, look at all of the uh, the, the sight verbs. You cannot, uh, uh, your eyes are pure, too pure to see evil. They cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? And now notice something interesting. There's been a shift here, hasn't there? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. What was the complaint last week? Your people are wicked. What's the complaint this week? Your people are more righteous than these people, right? So now all of a sudden, the wicked of last week are the at least more righteous in Habakkuk's mind than the Chaldeans. And he may well have been right about that. When you read here and in history about the Chaldeans, he may well have been right about that. But now all of a sudden, the wicked that he was complaining about are now the the victims of those more wicked than they. And, and the rest of this, this, uh, this chapter is his complaint. Um, it seemed wrong in Habakkuk's mind to use the more wicked to punish the less wicked. So God's ways, his idleness first bothered Habakkuk, and now his ways or his means are bothering Habakkuk. And he went on rather poetically to describe the Chaldeans But first in verse 14, he says, You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And that should immediately bring up in our minds some language, right? The fish of the sea. You made man like the fish of the sea. No, wait, wait. In Genesis, it says, You made man to rule over the fish of the sea. And you made man like crawling things that have no ruler. Wait, didn't you make man to be the ruler of the fish of the sea and the crawling things and so he's saying here that god you have now taken the apex of your creation the ruler of your creation and you have reduced him to the level of fish of the sea and crawling things that have no ruler and then the chaldeans come in and take advantage of that vulnerable situation in verse 15 it says he brings up all of them who is the he well as we keep on reading the he is the, ba- the Babylonian or the Chaldean. It's the, the, the archetypical Chaldean, the representative Chaldean. What does he do? Well, you have all these humans that are just swimming around aimlessly or crawling around aimlessly with no ruler. Well, the Chaldean comes and what does he do? He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet And so he rejoices and is glad. This is entertaining for the Chaldean. This is a a good day for the Chaldean to fish humans, to, to drag humans, to carry them captive away. That's what animates the Chaldean. That's what makes him glad. Therefore, not only does he use his nets to to capture humans, and by the way, there is some indication that 
that they would do this. They would string, they would hook humans by their cheek and string them along the captives like, like fish on a line. Uh, therefore, not only do they, does, do they use their nets to capture humans, but they sacrifice, they worship their nets. Therefore, verse 16, they're, they're idolaters. He sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. So he worships the means of his conquest. That is, he worships his own might, his own military might, because it makes him rich. And then there's a rhetorical question in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And we might think in parentheses, and are we next? Is that your idea? We're next. They've already, they've already trampled, uh, the Chaldeans have trampled on the Babylonians and taken over their name. They, they trampled on all of the superpowers, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Egyptians. Are we next? Are they going to go on forever doing this? Is that what you think is right? Oh God, this is the second complaint. And now we have God's answer. And, oh, before we have God's answer, actually, we have kind of Habakkuk resting his case. In chapter two, verse one, he 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 presents his strongest arguments against God's behavior, and then he takes his stand. He says, "I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint." Now. Um, here, in, in stationing himself on the watchpost, Habakkuk is, is using language that we find in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea about prophets. The prophets were watchmen. They were watching out. But in the other prophets, they were watching out for coming destruction, to announce that coming destruction. But Habakkuk is placing himself on the watchtower to watch out for God, not so much to watch out for the Chaldeans. He's not waiting for that judgment. He's waiting for an answer from God, maybe to avert that judgment. So he stations himself there and says, I'm going to station myself here to watch out for your answer, O God. And interesting, it's, it's to look out and see what he will say to me. Interesting, right? It's still using that sight language, sight verbs, when we're talking about hearing. I want to see what you are going to say to me. And and then he says, and I'm going to prepare my answer for that. Once I hear what you say, I'm going to have another answer. Look what he says. Look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is, this is really a bold sort of language, isn't it? He complains. God answers. He complains again. And then he expects God to answer, and he's already trying to formulate, how will I respond when he responds to me? I have been challenged by this throughout this past week in my prayer life. This man really believed in God. And this man really wrestled with God in prayer. And he really prayed to God as if God really listens and answers prayer. And this has been a great challenge to me. I, 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 I shudder somewhat at the boldness of Habakkuk, but I'm amazed at the intimacy of this man as he wrestled with his own faith and as he wrestled with what he knew about God 
And as he wrestled with the, the, the conditions on the ground, as he thought, saw things developing. And he was in a conversation with God. Well, sure enough, God answered him. And that's what we have in chapter 2, verses 2 to, to 5. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And here there's interesting language that also evokes things from the Old Testament. He says, write the vision. Now we'll find out that the vision is what follows. This is kind of a prelude to the vision. The vision is at least what is in verses 4 and 5. And it may be what's in the rest of chapter 2. But at least 4 and 5. This is the vision. And he says, write the vision on the tablets. Our version simply says tablets. Write the version on the tablets. What does that remind us of immediately? What tablets? Ten Commandments, exactly. Written on the tablets, okay? And so that stirs up an image of God's commandments. So that he may run who reads it. In Jeremiah 23, verse 21, this idea of running is a metaphor for prophesying. So write it on the tablets so people can read it and then they can take off running and they can prophesy. So put it down so that it can be permanently written and it also needs to be written permanently because it's not yet here. It awaits an appointed time. It hastens to the end. Now, we don't know yet what that end is, but apparently the end of his using the Chaldeans to judge the Judeans and other nations, apparently, which would be about 70 years later after this. It hastens to an end. And it will seem, from your perspective, to be delaying, but it's actually not delaying. It will be right on time, and so you need to wait for it. Write it down on the tablets. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, um, there's also, uh, it says, make it plain on the tablets, uh, once again, that verb is used only a couple of other times in the Old Testament, and it, in both times, refers to God's commandment. So he's stirring up this image of, here is God's command. And it's interesting that there was a later Jewish commentary called the Talmud, and in the Talmud, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the rabbis identified Habakkuk 2.4, the last part of Habakkuk 2.4, as the summary of the 613 commandments that they had found in the Old Testament. So they said, Habakkuk took the 613 and he turned them into one, the righteous shall live by faith. So interesting, they, they made the connection here that this is the commandment. This is the commandment of the Lord. Now, um, the... Um, the vision is likely, like I said, what's in 4 and 5, or maybe maybe beyond that. And what we have here is a contrast between the arrogant and the righteous. The arrogant and the righteous. And the structure is arrogant, righteous, arrogant. The righteous don't get much in this vision. It's mostly about the arrogant, but there is this fascinating verse here about the righteous. So it describes the arrogant in verse 4. The, the Chaldean, but any who, who fit this description, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then in verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the grave, the place of death. 
Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. So God is not is not unaware of the Chaldeans. He knows exactly what they're like. And he's describing their arrogance, their rapacious arrogance here that is never satisfied. They drink down wine. They gobble up nations. That's the arrogant. And his soul is not upright within him. And then in the middle of this, in the middle of this, we have this one line. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, um, this uh, this is is just three words in Hebrew, and uh, we need more words in English to, to spell it out, but it is righteous by his faith, which is one word, by his faith shall live. Righteous by his faith shall live. And so it's a little ambiguous, isn't it? Righteous by his faith shall live. What does that mean? And by the way, this word faith usually refers to what we would call faithfulness, faithfulness. But unfortunately, in English, we have a disconnect between faith and faithfulness. Faith is depending on somebody else. Faithfulness, we tend to look at as a a quality of our own, forgetting the fact that it is faithful, that is, full of faith. It's the quality of being full of faith. And I was talking with Robbie about faith and faithfulness, and and Derek was in on the conversation this, this past week, and Robbie had a good definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is faith plus time. Faith plus time. So it is, it's the same quality. It's the same characteristic, but it is over time. And Robbie used the, the good illustration of, of marriage. When we have a wedding, what do the couple, what does the couple do? Pledges what? Faith. Pledges faith. And so there they are, they're exercising faith. And then if they keep doing that over, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years, what do we call them? That's a, faithful couple. Why? Because that initial faith that they pledged, they continued to exercise over their lives. And that seems to be the emphasis here. Bad times are coming, people of God. It is going to get worse before it gets better. And so if you want to go on living, then you need to go on believing. So this is a call to faithfulness, to continue to be full of faith in the midst of hard times that were present and that were soon to be coming. Those who are righteous, in, addition, in, in, in contrast to those who are not upright within their souls, those who are righteous shall live by this faithfulness. Now, um, you will probably recognize this verse as a famous verse, uh, the most famous verse of Habakkuk. And the reason it's famous is because it appears three times in the New Testament in, in, key, in key places. And um, it's interesting that before we get to the New Testament, there is a bridge. So the, the Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament written primarily or all in Greek. And um, so we have Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, but there is a bridge document. And it is the Old Testament translated into Greek, Right. Now, if you are a New Testament writer and you're going to quote the Old Testament, you have two options. If you are a native Hebrew speaker, you can go back and look at the Hebrew and you can make your own translation into Greek. Or you can save time by doing what? You can quote the the translation, the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. Now, 
Um, what we find in Hebrews, that's one of the examples of uh, this quotation, and I read it in the, in the Old Testament reading. Here, the, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And by the way, the Greek translation is interesting because um, instead, of, instead of saying, remember in Hebrew it says, righteous by faith, by his faith will live. In, in the Greek it comes out a little different. Uh, it comes out like this. The righteous out of my faith will live. Kind of indicating God's faith or God's faithfulness, that the righteous will live by God's faithfulness. Or another version says, the righteous, my righteous, will live by faith. And some of that, some people referred that to the Messiah. Okay, so there's some interesting translation issues going on here. So in Hebrews, the author quoted this, and notice what he says. It's in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one, quoting a variant of the, of the Greek, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This context is very much like the Habakkuk context, right? Hard times, you're in hard times, people of God, and harder times may be coming. Keep on believing. Don't fall back. Don't shrink back. Preserve your souls by continuing to trust just as you did at the beginning. But then Paul takes up this verse and he uses it in, um, in Romans and in Galatians. So in Romans, we read this at the beginning of the service. Paul says, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in Galatians, he says it again in chapter 3, verse 10, and here he contrasts by faith in Jesus with relying on the works of the law. And he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified, declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what Paul is doing is he's, he's actually playing on some of the ambiguity of the original and of the translations. And what he is emphasizing is this. Habakkuk and Hebrews seem to be emphasizing the righteous shall live by faith. Paul seems to be emphasizing the righteous by faith, not by works, shall live. You see the difference? And it's interesting, and both of those are, are possibilities here. That, that's the richness of this ambiguity in the translation. So do you get the difference? The righteous, however they're righteous, however they became righteous, they will live how? By faith. And Paul is saying, how did they get to be righteous in the first place? How did they get to be in that, that, that status of righteous before God? Well, he says it's not by keeping the law. It's by faith. So the righteous by faith, what will happen with them? They'll live. They will have eternal life. And that's why he says this is, a, this is really a summary of the gospel. This is the good news. That the righteous by faith will live, and they will live eternally. So which is it? Is it that the righteous will live by faith, or that the righteous by faith will live? 
Yeah, it's both, of course, because that's in Scripture, right? This is all in Scripture. Yes, so it's all here. And what Paul was probably doing was, was maybe combining this with his other favorite Old Testament verse, which is Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So he may be in his mind combining these two ideas. The righteous by faith will live by faith. And if we can put those two ideas together, we have a real summary of the Christian life. How do we get into the Christian life? How do we become Christians? How are we declared righteous before God? By faith. How do we continue to the end, enjoying life and and laying hold of eternal life on that last day? By faith. And that's why he says, it's by faith from first to last. Now, I want you to notice something here going back to Habakkuk. God didn't really answer Habakkuk, did he? He didn't really answer his complaint. The first time he did, Habakkuk said, God, do something. And God said, okay, I will. This is what I'm going to do. And then Habakkuk said, yeah, but not that. You you can't do that. That is unworthy of you. And God didn't really answer him, did he? He never really explained. But what did he say? The righteous will live by faith. So in other words, you're getting all the information that you're going to get. I have declared what I'm going to do. And now I'm calling you to to be full of faith. And so preserve your life. And this, this, really, this really does bring out some of the dynamics of faith, doesn't it? Some of the dynamics that we all wrestle with, right? You see, God is, is, is not worthy of belief because he's going to explain himself to our satisfaction. And by not answering Habakkuk, he is in essence saying, I have told you what I'm going to tell you, and now I'm calling you to continue to believe what you already believe. And he also implicitly, by not answering the question, reserves his right as God to do what is best, even if what is best seems wrong to us. He also implicitly reserves the right to use the wicked for his righteous purposes. He's using the the Chaldeans for his righteous purposes. And we find an even even stronger and maybe more shocking example of that in the New Testament. Peter on the day of Pentecost got up to preach and he was preaching to Jews in the middle of his sermon as he was preaching to them the death and resurrection of Christ. He said this in, in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Acts, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch that? Why did Jesus die? Because it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why did Jesus die? Because of the jealousy of the high priests, because of the cowardice of Pontius Pilate, because of the malevolence of the the Romans. And those two are put together here. It's according to God's plan. And it was at the hands of lawless men. So, So God reserves the right 
as God to do what is best and even to use the wicked to accomplish his purposes, even if it doesn't seem right to us. You know, and it didn't seem right to Peter, did it? Jesus finally told them, he said, I'm going to pull back the curtain. Peter, you've just declared me to be the Christ. Matthew 16, you got it, Peter. God revealed that to you. You know who I am. And now I want to tell you that the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem. And he will be rejected by the the chief priests. He will be spat upon. He will be beaten. He will be arrested. He will be crucified. And on the third day, he will rise from the dead. And Peter took him aside and said, No, Lord, that's not right. You can't do that. And it seemed wrong to him. It it seemed wrong to many Jews to have a, a crucified Messiah. It seemed wrong to many Greeks and Gentiles to have a God who would make himself look so foolish by coming a man and and being crucified on a cross. They're crying out and saying, God, you can't do that. That's not worthy of you. And here we have the supreme example of God saying, I know what is best and I can use even the wicked to accomplish my saving purposes. And so as we wrestle with our world, with our lives, with the things we see around us or the things we see in us or the things that we see in our loved ones, we need to look at the cross because there's no greater example of God being God and accomplishing His perfect and righteous plan, even using wicked people in the process. And when we see that this is the kind of God we have, even if he will not explain all of his ways and means to us, we realize that this is a God who is truly God. He's not God because he explains himself to us in a satisfactory way to us. He is God. Because he is the all-powerful one, the eternal one, the holy one who always does all his holy will. And by using wicked things and people in the process, he is demonstrating that he has everything under control, even if we can't understand it, and that he will bring about all his holy will. And on the basis of that, here we hear The call, once again, to keep on believing and not to give up. For the righteous by faith will live by faith. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this simple and profound message. We need to hear it to get into life. And we need to hear it to go on in life. We need faith to believe in Jesus and be declared righteous. And we need faith to live day by day. Especially as we get worn down by all of the tragedies and trials around us. Lord, I pray that we would all be righteous by faith in Jesus. And that day by day, moment by moment, that we would be able to live by faith. We pray this in Christ's name.